Well, good afternoon and greetings from your brothers and sisters in North Hills Church in Huntsville. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Joshua chapter 3. We'll be in Joshua chapter 3 this afternoon. Uh, I'd like to thank the session for inviting me to preach and giving me an excuse to return to what is in a really a very real sense for me a home here at this church in Florence in general. That's uh, always a pleasure to be able to come back and preach. It's been a little over a year, a few days past a year since I was, la- I was last here and got to preach. I preached last January, and I hope that correlation truly does not imply causality, uh, given the past year we've had. So I hope we're not setting ourselves up for uh, some rough times ahead. Uh, though it has been a bit of a crazy start to the year already, uh, but regardless of what's happened or is going to happen uh, as far as uh, craziness, there's probably some things in this coming year that you're looking forward to. I know there's things I'm looking forward to. Some of you might be looking forward to retiring this year or a special birthday or maybe a new child, a new job, or maybe some of you just looking forward to the warm weather of summer. I know I am. Regardless of what it is, there are things coming up that we're looking forward to, that we're anticipating, and we're all, we all know the anticipation that comes with waiting for something and the mounting excitement as it draws near. In our passage this morning, in Joshua chapter 3, we find the Israelites finally on the cusp of entering into the promised land. They had been waiting for this moment for 40 years and more. This was something they had been looking forward to, something they had been anticipating for a generation. And in the midst of that excitement uh, and transition, we see the Lord do some really incredible and encouraging things here in Joshua chapter 3. So I'm going to read the chapter. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a little long, but just bear with me, and then we'll pray and dig into it. So Joshua chapter 3, then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall, sh- uh, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe to a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as, the bearing, as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. 
and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel were passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us without a communication from you, that you have not left us in the dark to find our own way, but have sent your prophets, uh, your, your people, to, to write your word and have preserved it for us. So we thank you for that. I ask now that you would be with us as we consider this chapter. I ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, opening our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, convicting us of sin, encouraging us in righteousness, and making us more like Christ. Be with us now as we study this passage and see what it would have to say to us in our own anticipation, our own excitement, in our own uh, days to come. In Christ's name, amen. As we come to this passage, we might be tempted to kind of read it and almost skip over it in a sense. It's sandwiched between some really exciting parts of the story. Just before this in chapter 2, we had the uh, story of uh, Rahab and the spies. And if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, you remember that the people of God had been promised the land of Canaan, but, they were, but because of their unbelief and their rebellion, they were judged and sent to wander the wilderness for 40 years. And the book of Joshua picks up after Moses dies and the wandering is over, and the people are about to enter into the land and, and see the fulfillment of God's promises to them. And we get to Joshua, and in chapter 2, Rahab and the spies, we see this really often preached passage, this really memorable passage where uh, Rahab, the pagan prostitute, uh, confesses her faith in the one true God and is saved by her faith. It's really an exciting and, and memorable portion of the, the book. And in the coming chapters, we have the siege of Jericho, another off-preached, uh, very memorable, very iconic scene. even has a VeggieTales episode about it. And that's how you know a, a portion of the Old Testament is really important. Does it have a VeggieTales episode? This chapter does not have a VeggieTales episode, and it can be seen almost as a boring interlude. We read it and are like, okay, cool, the Lord does a miracle and the people into the promised land. It's, it's, we can become so used to the contours of the story that we miss the amazing things the Lord does and teaches, even, even in the seemingly small details of the stories. There's much to learn and praise God for this morning from this passage. My theme this, this sorry, I keep saying morning because I wrote it in my notes, this afternoon. My theme this afternoon is very simply that the Lord himself is the one who leads to, works for, and fulfills his promises. And we'll see this in this passage as we look at the preparation for the fulfillment, the power for fulfillment, and the pattern of the fulfillment. So firstly, let's look at the preparation for the fulfillment and that we see the Lord is making, leading and making the promise happen. As I said, the spies had returned and the people were at the edge of what they had been waiting for for 40 years. And I imagine if you were in the camp that morning, there would have been a very tense and excited feeling in the air as they knew they would soon be crossing over into the promised land. And to prepare the people for this momentous occasion, we see the Lord give very special instruction to the people to mark this time and see them through it. First, we see the leaders of the people tell them that the ark would lead the way. The ark of the covenant was a treasured possession to the people of Israel. The Lord had commanded it to be made and, and used in his worship. And within it were several items that were symbols of, and testaments to God's promise and relationship to his people. In it were the tablets that Moses had made or that Moses had received from God on the mountain, signifying God's covenant promises to Israel. There was a golden pot of manna signifying God's provision for his people. 
And there was Aaron's staff that had budded when there, were, when there was a confrontation about who should lead the priests. God had caused Aaron's staff to bud as a miracle reminding the people of God's leadership and his sovereignty over the affairs of his people. The ark acted as a visual reminder to the people of who God is, what he had done, and what he had promised to do. It was where his glory dwelt when the tabernacle was set up. It was a reminder of God himself, so much so that it was equated to the presence of God himself. The ark usually traveled in the middle of the procession, symbolizing God's presence in the midst of his people. But what we see here in this passage is as they prepared a cross into the, to the promised land, the ark would go first. And the people were to stay 2,000 cubits, that's about a half mile behind, so a good distance behind. The ark was to blaze the trail. And the Lord is teaching his people, even through this seemingly small detail, you see the people were excited, the people were anxious. They've been waiting for this moment for years and years, and for some of them their whole lives. And this was a day that was going to be remembered by them and by their children forever. And so the Lord wants to remind them of something, take this, to take this opportunity to impress upon their minds something that they will remember. And on top of all that anticipation, there's probably some worry and fear about the change and the enemies in front of them. Not only that, but the people had a new leader in Joshua. Some of you may have been here when Scott first arrived as a pastor, or you may have been in a, another church where a new pastor comes in. In seminary, we were told to expect that at least 10% of the people of a, out of a church would leave whenever we found our first head pastor position. Some of it may be people who like the old pastor better. Some of it may be, well, they don't like us. Some of it may just be that they want to take the opportunity to try something new. And there's good and bad reasons. It's, it is what it is. And you may have felt some of this yourself if you've been through that situation or known others who've felt that or left. And, and this isn't unique to the church. You see this in all kinds of institutions. When there's a change in leadership, there's an instability that can cause fracturing in an organization, even the people of God. So you can imagine some of them might have been thinking, we're finally here, we're on the cusp of the promised land, this is great, this is awesome, but is this Joshua guy the right guy? Is he really up to the task? Can he really feel, fill Moses's, well, not shoes, but sandals? Can he fill Moses's sandals? Now you might not think that Joshua had these problems since God had explicitly chose him to follow Moses, but look at verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 3, the Lord says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. What's the reality underlying what the Lord says here? Well, the reality is that Joshua isn't exalted in the people's sight, right? Or maybe not as exalted as he wanted or as the Lord wanted. He wasn't yet viewed as the leader he was meant to be. And so the Lord promises to Joshua to exalt him and prove that he is with him, just as he was with Moses. Now, if you were standing on the side of a body of water after years of hardship and trouble, and the Lord had promised to get you to the other side and exalt you just like he had Moses, what might you expect? Well, if that were me, I'd expect that I'm about to be parting this body of water, right? If I'm supposed to be like Moses, if the Lord's telling me he's going to exalt me like Moses, and there's this water we got to get across, I'm expecting that I'm about to go out in the middle of that thing with a staff or something, and, and I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to be the one pushing this water back. I always think of the, uh, the, the movie, I think it was Charlton Heston, where he's playing, you know, you see him raise a staff and the water's part. Uh, that's going to be me. I'm going to be the star of this show. And we do see something similar to what Moses did at the Red Sea, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what's important to note in this part of the passage is, is that it's not Joshua who's called to lead the way. It's not Joshua who's called to part 
the waters. Instead, the Lord leads the way with his ark, and the Lord parts the waters. Joshua and the priests are there along with him, but if you notice, they're called to stand still. The Lord had told Moses to extend out his arm and to, extend, uh, to part the waters and extend his arm to put them back. But Joshua and the priests are called to stand still and let the Lord work. Now this is small, but to me I think it's very important. You see, the Lord was teaching his people that he is their true leader. He is the one who charges ahead of them. He is the one who is going to lead the way to the fulfillment of what he had promised them. And in that, Joshua is exalted, right? I mean, Moses was such a huge figure to the Israelites. Who could ever measure up? Joshua would have always been under the shadow of Moses unless God reminded the people that he was their true leader and he was the one who had chosen Moses and chosen Joshua. Both of their authority was derived from God's authority and not in themselves or their own accomplishments or capabilities. And thus Joshua didn't have to prove anything. He didn't have to measure up. He only had to be faithful and follow where the Lord was leading him. He didn't have to make the promise come to pass because the Lord was showing that the Lord himself would lead the way in making it come to pass. And so we'd see that the Lord prepares the way for the fulfillment of the promise by leading the way into the promised land. Next, I want to look at the proof of the promise, the proof of the fulfillment of the promise in the Lord providing the power and ability for that fulfillment. Not only does the Lord lead the way in making the promise come to pass, it's only by his power that the promise can happen. As we read, there was a problem with the Israelites' plan to enter into the promised land, right? Not only was the land ahead of them filled with enemies, not only were there doubts and uncertainties about their new leadership, the Jordan River was swollen and full. Obviously, the spies had made it across, so if you're strong and able, you could probably make it across. But what about the young children? What about the old men and women, those who weren't able or or who were weak? What about all the animals and the belongings of the people? They wouldn't have been able to make it across, or at least not all of them. If the Lord was a God who prized strength and capability above all, I think he would have had had them try to cross on their own strength. After all, the only ones who would have made it across would have been the strong, the fit, the able, And what better way to prepare them for driving out the nations before them than survival of the fittest? If the Lord prized ingenuity and practicality above all, he could have led them to a ford or had them construct a raft or bridge or some other type of way to get across. He could have uh, done something else. But the Lord had led them into a dead end. And you may have felt this way before. You follow the Lord. You try to live a holy life only to be hit with a dead end. I felt, certainly felt this way when I first went to seminary. I knew the Lord had called me into ministry. I, I knew the Lord had made a way. I wanted to go to seminary, and the Lord seemed to be making a way, and I went only to be hit with issue after issue. I was expecting to find a lot of close friends and good community, only to be hit by loneliness and depression. I was expecting things to go smoothly, only to be constantly worried over money and other issues. And eventually I had to leave. I, I remember lying on my bed praying and crying, wondering if I had made a mistake, wondering if I had been wrong about all of it, wondering why God had made this path that seemed to be so obvious, seemed to be so straight, seemed to be so right. Why had that ended in a swollen river I couldn't cross? 
But what seems like a dead end is just an opportunity for the Lord to prove his goodness, to prove his power, and show us that he is the one who brings his promises to pass. The Lord doesn't prize capability or fitness. The Lord doesn't prize ingenuity or practicality. The Lord prizes opportunities to show grace and kindness to the weak and needy, like them and like us and like me. It was through that dead end of seminary that I met my wife. The greatest gift and proof of God's goodness that I've ever received apart from the gospel It's through that dead end of loneliness that I learned the sweetness of friendship with God. It was through that dead end of worrying about money that I learned about the faithfulness of God to take care of even the many birds of the field. It was through that dead end that I learned the practical wisdom and experience that comes with working some really uh, difficult jobs. The Lord used that dead end to teach me and bless me so much more than seminary ever could. And of course, the Lord led me through that dead end and, and helped me finish my degree eventually, five years later. But at the time, it, when I first hit it, I couldn't see any of that. It was just a dead end. But through the years, the Lord has used that to bless me and to show his goodness, to fulfill his promises, to make me more like Christ, to fulfill his promises, to help me to grow. The dead ends and issues that seem to crop up in front of what the Lord has promised cannot and will not stop the Lord. Instead, they serve as proofs of the promise because the Lord uses them to show his goodness and kindness. And that's certainly true here. And Joshua knows that it's true. Look with me in verses, uh, verse 10 through 13. This is, this is big. But Joshua tells the people, he says, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out, from bef- uh, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and all the rest of the ites. Joshua says, here is how you shall know. Here is the evidence. Here is the testimony. Here's the, the receipt, the proof that God will do what he says he's going to do, that God can do what he says he's going to do. And he goes on to describe the miracle God would perform in the face of that dead end, of that swollen river. The dead end of the swollen Jordan River was a proof of God's ability to fulfill what he had promised to the people of Israel. Lastly, well, we see this story set a pattern for the greater fulfillment of the promise. In the last portion of the text, we see what God had said come to pass. The ark goes out and the waters part and the people pass by on dry ground. Now this should be familiar, right? We've already talked about a little bit about Moses parting the Red Sea. There's a pattern here that we see many times throughout Scripture. Again, we see it in Exodus. The people of Egypt are fleeing, their in, uh, are fleeing Egyptians, and their enemies are behind them. And the Lord parts the waters and leads them out of slavery. We see it here when the enemies are in front of them, and the Lord parts the waters and leads them into the promised land. Uh, we see it again when the prophet Elijah was headed to his death in 2 Kings 2, 7 and 8. Elijah, Elijah parts the water, and he and Elisha pass through. And Elisha is taken up in a chariot of fire, and Elisha comes back and parts the waters and comes into his own ministry. Parting of waters seems to be a marking a miracle that marks a transition. It's a way of God saying that he is with his people in the midst of change and will bring them to where he has promised despite the obstacles that seem to be in front or behind of his people. When we look at what God has promised us in Christ, it might not seem that this passage has anything to teach us about how God will fulfill his promises to us, but this passage sets a pattern that we see followed by Christ in the gospel. Just as God led the way for the people of Israel, Christ came and led the way to salvation for us 
Just as the ark showed the Israelites where to go, Christ himself came and brought truth and grace and showed us how to live and where to go. And just as God provided the power to bring about what he had promised, Christ himself provides the power for the fulfillment of the promises of God. And just as the ark passed into the waters and defeated the obstacles in front of the people and led them into the promised land, Christ himself has blazed the trail into and through the waters of death and defeated death itself to make us a safe way into the true and better promised land, the coming new heavens and new earth. And in a way, we've already followed him through those dark waters. And Paul in Colossians 2, 12 says that we have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. That is Paul saying in our baptism with water, when we're baptized, we are showing that we have passed through the waters of death into the life Christ brings just as the Israelites passed through the waters of the Jordan into the promised land. This passage sets a pattern, a shadow of what Christ would do. It paints a picture with real physical things of what Christ would do spiritually in the future so we see that in this passage the lord prepares the way for the fulfillment he provides the power for the fulfillment and he sets a pattern for the fulfillment that we followed by christ and finally i want us to look at a few of the ways this passage uh, a a few of the ways this passage ought to influence us in our head how we think how we think about things in our heart how we feel about things and in our hands how we act and what we should do in light of these things. Firstly, how should we think? How does this passage influence our head? What does this teach us? Well, in Luke 24, 27, there we see Christ teaching the two disciples on the road to Emmaus about how the Old Testament bears witness to him. With the advent of a new year, many of you may have started a Bible reading plan. Uh, I have done that before, and it's usually about Leviticus that I really start dragging and, and, and like, well, I could do that, or I could watch this new TV show. Uh, it's, parts of the Old Testament are really hard to get through, like this chapter, right? This, this chapter is nothing super, uh, spectacular when you first read it. It's, like I said, we, we're tempted to skip over it. We're tempted not to dive into it because it just seems, I mean, honestly, boring at times. But what this chapter teaches us and how we, we ought to think, it helps us to realize That even in the seemingly small chapters, even in the seemingly boring parts, there are things there to encourage us. There's lessons to be learned. There are things that help shape us. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we read the Old Testament, as we do our Bible reading plans or whatever it may be, we ought to be asking, what is the Lord trying to teach me? What is he trying to correct in me? How does this passage point to Jesus? When we read the approach to the Old Testament in this way, we'll find that there's much more in it to say to us than we might have thought. This passage helps change how we think about the Old Testament. It isn't irrelevant, as some have said, but rather it's full of encouragement and lessons for us. Secondly, how should this affect how we feel? How should this affect our hearts? Well, if all of this is true and the Lord leads the way in fulfilling his promises, then we can take heart in his leadership and feel the freedom we have in that leadership. Remember how Joshua must have felt taking over after Moses, right? I mean, how would you have felt in his place? You're called to take the place to fill the shoes of a man who was called the most humble man on earth? 
the greatest leader of Israel, the one who talked to God face to face, and you're supposed to follow that act? The pressure and the expectations would have been enormous. I can't even imagine having to, to follow that, to be the guy after that. But you don't need Joshua as an example, though. In your own life, the pressures and expectations placed on you are enormous at times. The pressure to measure up to what society and others think you should be, the pressure to live a good life and make a legacy, the pressure to ensure things go well for you and your family. There's pressure at work, pressure at home, pressure everywhere. But what God is teaching his people and us is that we can find rest in his leadership. We don't need to measure up to some impossible standard. We don't have to prove ourselves. All we have to do is follow him and be faithful to him. If all we ever do in life is uh, love God and follow him, then we've lived a life worth living. And as we look in this passage, we see there's a freedom in the leadership of God that helps us to feel freedom from the burdens that are placed upon us, to feel the freedom we have in following him, to know that he will lead the way, and he has shown us where to go and how to follow him and how to live a life worth living. Lastly, we'll look at how this passage influences how we act, how our hands, how we live, what should we do. One of the most obvious and yet difficult examples of this is in how we handle our own dead ends. When we hit dead ends in our life, following the Lord, we can be tempted to react in a few different ways. We might be tempted to despair, right? We can get down in the dumps. We can, we can feel hopeless and, and depressed. We might react with brute force. We can try to force ourselves across that river. Whatever is in the way, if the Lord won't make it happen, I'll make it happen. We can react with practicality, right? We can try to reason our way around it or, or employ the best, mes- best methods, try to uh, conjure a way and create a way in our minds to f- tackle whatever's in front of us through our own cleverness. Uh, for me and my wife, lately our dead end has been my wife's cancer. Uh, Rachel was diagnosed in July, and it, that was really hard because... I mean, we're following the Lord. We're trying to live lives of holiness. We're trying to be obedient. We're, we're doing our best to, to love God and love others and follow what he, where he has told us to go. And then all of a sudden, trouble, a swollen river. And so how we react to that, should we despair and give up on the Lord? Should we just say, we'll fight through it, we'll just overcome it? Should we just say, well, we'll just get the best doctors, we'll get the best medicines, and with the right tools, the right behavior, the right things we eat, we'll, we'll get through this. No. We should say that the Lord has led us here. We know the Lord has promised good to us. He has promised to make us more like Christ and use us for his glory and bring us to himself, and he will see us through this and fulfill those promises in his own Way. And that might mean using those practical means of doctors and medicines, but it's not primarily about those means. It's about our trust in him through those things. It might mean knuckling down and fighting our way through it, but we fight in light of God's strength and not our own. It might mean, and it has meant, some nights of crying and despair. But we don't despair as those without hope. But we despair as those who know we have hope in Christ. That might mean that the water's closing over us. Sometimes the dead end is the end. But we have a God who came into the world and walked that same path, who blazed the trail through the waters of death and emerged the other side into the true and better promised land. And when we're called to follow him through those paths, we go with happy hearts. 
knowing that he is with us and he has paved the path with his own blood and walks alongside us. The right response of God's people in the face of dead ends is to trust in God's leadership and follow his guidance even into the dark waters. And sometimes he parts them, sometimes he doesn't. But regardless, he will bring us out into the other side. The seemingly small passage shows us that the Lord is leading us on the path towards the fulfillment of his promises in Christ. He is empowering us and making possible the fulfillment of those promises. And he's showing us that those, and those who came before what the truer and greater fulfillment of the promise would look like in Christ. And that is teaching us to think about the Old Testament in the light of Christ, to feel the freedom we have in him from the expectations and pressures of those around us, and to act in ways that show our trust in the paths that he calls us to walk. This truly is a great passage, and it's in this boring, small, little chapter, the Lord is teaching some wonderful and great things. Let's pray together now. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for your promises to us in Christ. We thank you that all your promises find their amen in him and find their truly, their very, that they are all true in Christ and what he has done and is doing and will do in our lives and for us. And I do ask that you would help us now as we go throughout this year, um, Lord, that you would help us to read your word with new eyes, to see all the wondrous things that are in it. Father, that your glory shines from every page, and I pray that we would have eyes to see it and hearts to respond, that your spirit would be working in us as we read the Old and New Testaments. Father, I ask that you would help us to, be, to feel the freedom we have in you, to know that you are leading the way, that you are fighting for us and not against us. Father, we ask that you would help us as we face our own dead ends, whatever they may be, that we would not despair, not try to knuckle down and fight uh, on our own strength, not seek out the our, our own, through our own cleverness means of escaping, but rather that we would trust you, that we would make use of the things you've given us, but through it all, know that you have called us to go through this for your own glory and for our good, and that you will bring us out the other side, either in this life or the next, uh, Lord. We trust that you know what is good. Uh, we trust that you know where you have brought us and why you have brought us there. I just ask that you would help us now as we seek to live this out and know it more deeply. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord is great. And truly the proper response of the people of God is to praise him for his greatness. And we'll do that now by singing, On um, Jordan's stormy banks I stand. Mm -hmm.